This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Dowling. Our guest this week is Iowa 4th District Representative Steve King. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on more than 311 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Congressman Steve King next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. America's Crop Insurance Industry, providing individualized protection on more than 311 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Fresh back from the August break, Iowa 4th District Representative Steve King says this Congress has a long agenda and a short number of days to consider legislation, including a budget for the new fiscal year. I think that there's a deal that could come through that get us down maybe away from an omnibus. It's still going to require a CR for some of the appropriations that we have. But I don't think it's going to be anything like the president signed the last time. Uh, we've got to, we've come too far on some of these appropriation bills for that to be the case. I think that we get this down to the end relatively peacefully, and while well, when we consider what we've been through sometimes in the past, and I think we get it done by midnight on the 30th of September, which is you know you have to have a deadline or Congress doesn't get it done. But I, I, I think that the the tension around the budget, around any the agreements that will be made, is pretty low in comparison to past times, with the exception of the president calling for the funding for a wall. And I, I hear what he has to say. He would like to have that in this September 30th, but he's got an agreement from leadership to address it in a lame duck session after the election. Then uh, that's his call, and whether he'd agree with that, my advice to him is, well, let's get that done also by September 30th, and that way when the people go to the polls, they can vote according to what we uh, what we do with the funding for the wall and everything else. Speaking of September 30th, where does the farm bill fit? Well, a month ago and six weeks ago, I said that I expected we would have a farm bill done and on the president's desk expecting a signature sometime around mid-September. I am not that optimistic. The conferees met last week, and it was just a pro forma setting was all that around the horn they spent a minute or two each saying what they wanted or didn't want so it was just a formal meeting but the real stuff gets done uh, staff and chairs and uh, the pushback is coming of course on the work requirements for the SNAP program or the food stamp program and the, the Democrats in the Senate are pushing back hard on that the Democrats in the House are but the, the votes are obviously there in the House to support work requirements because we passed it out of there. That is the, the biggest sticking point for a farm bill. And then um, should we uh, should we get that resolved, then there's uh, another big point that I think is very important to discuss, and it has real long-term implications all across this country. And that's going to be, you're expected already, Jeff, is the, the King Amendment or the Protect Interstate Commerce Act, which I introduced into the... Uh, House version of the bill successfully in committee 
have passed the floor of the House for the second time in a row. And it is this, that we have states like California that are regulating the means and methods of production of agriculture products in other states. And so where I am right now as we speak, I'm up in ag country. And um, we, we are, this is the number one egg producing congressional district in America. And we have, California has passed a regulation that required, first it was their producers had to double the cage size that the industry had for their laying hens. And then they realized they couldn't compete with the rest of the country. And so California passed a regulation that required any eggs being sold in California to be certified to come from hens that were in cages twice the industry standard size. So now we have California inspectors traveling into and around Iowa with their tape measures on their belt, going into our laying houses and measuring the cages and counting the hens in each cage and deciding whether those eggs are suitable for Californians to eat. That's just one piece of this. It's also these circumstances are similar for banning gestation crates for sows, for banning stalls for veal calves, for, for denying uh, the feeding of ducks and geese for foie gras liver. That's some of this. But the real the thing is this, that our founding fathers established an enumerated power for Congress to regulate interstate commerce. Nobody else, United States Congress, because they wanted the states to be free trade zones. They didn't want to see that trade wars between the states. But California has already started the trade war by locking products out and specifying how they're produced. And so my legislation says this, that it bans the states from specifying and regulating the methods or means of production of agriculture products in other states. They can regulate their own producers, but they can't tell Iowans or Indianans or anybody else how they're going to treat their livestock. And so that legislation needs to stay in that farm bill. If not, we're going to see all kinds of trade wars erupt between the states as the states regulate the means and methods of production of products in other states. Well, there's a couple of thoughts here in both of the topics you brought up. I would like to survey just a little bit further, and I'm, I'm reading from a story with AgriPulse from last week, and there was suggested by the Chairman Roberts of giving the Ag Secretary authority to administer waivers to enforce work requirements as a possible compromise. Would that fly with Republicans in the House? Mm, I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I think that there will be many in the House that would oppose that because you don't know who the next Secretary of Agriculture is going to be. We have a lot of trust in this one. Uh, we think a lot of Sonny Purdue. Uh, but, you know, what Tom, Tom Vilsack, I, he and I have served together for a lot of years together, and I would expect that if he had that authority, uh, he would have granted a waiver to every state. And uh, I think that would be a reason for pushback that would come from the House and the pressure is going to have to get greater before we can determine whether that kind of proposal can actually get the job done. In Boone, Iowa, during the Farm Progress Show, the Secretary of Agriculture, Purdue, said he had spoken with President Trump and the President had directed him to meet with EPA uh, Acting Administrator Wheeler and come to a compromise and make an E-15 announcement last week. And, Congressman, you told me that you didn't think it would happen. It didn't happen. So is it any less important, and is there a way to find a compromise to offer something to the petroleum industry without damaging the RFS and the renewable fuel industry as we know it? Well, Jeff, I don't know what the compromise would be. I'm, I'm making this argument with our leadership and with some of our administration. They'll say, 
we can't get this resolved because we can't get the stakeholders to sign off. And I would go right back at them and say, why would you think the stakeholders would sign off? If they could agree, they already would have done that, and we wouldn't have this conversation. Petroleum has a significant advantage. They control the retail outlets, and they've had their tax advantage for a lot of years. I'm not objecting to that. I'm saying give renewable fuels, give ethanol, biodiesel, market access. And whatever we might do to get the petroleum industry to sign off is going to be something that is to the disadvantage, not the advantage of ethanol. And that's what I I have said that clearly to Sonny Perdue, and I've said that clearly to Administrator Wheeler. I, I met with Administrator Wheeler the night he was in Iowa in his hotel for 40 minutes, and we sat down and had a good and healthy conversation eye to eye, but I got nothing out of that conversation that gave me a lot of optimism walking out of there. He knew the issues, but he was looking still for the stakeholders to sign off. And in discussions with um, with Secretary Purdue, uh, just as recently as a day and a half ago, I pointed out to him that the best thing we can do for the markets is not $12 billion worth of bridge bailouts just to bridge the hole, but the best thing we can do is, is let's go through, not just two, but through the E15. I don't want to see another blend wall like we had it, and we'll still have it, E10. I want that out of the way and let the market determine. Uh, and, and they have the power to do it. Administrator Wheeler, when I made the point to him about the RFS language that says shall contain 10% ethanol, that specific language, I said to him, who wrote that language? And he got a kind of a funny look on his face, and he said, well, I did. And then I said, well, what was your intent? Was your intent to say shall contain no more than 10%, or was it contain no less than 10%? He said, well, I wish I'd been more specific. And then I said, but you can't tell me the intent. And he said, no. And I think he thought that was a good place for a conversation to be. But I responded, I said, good. I'm glad because if you can't tell us the intent, then no one can make the argument as to intent trumping the actual specific language. The language says, shall contain 10%. That means it can have 10.1, it can have E20, 30, 50, E85. It all complies with the language you wrote. But if it's 9.9%, it does not, because you can't argue that's 10%. So now we go back to the specific language and interpret the language, and you have all the legal authority you need to fix this and open the door up. And, uh, of course, we don't have that done yet. Congressman, drifting to another uh, difficult and challenging issue, agriculture has long since said the immigration system of the U.S. is broken. And for your own reasons and tragedy in your own state, I think you would concur. The question is, do you see the House coming to immigration reform uh, this year? And what are your thoughts of the H2C program that's been uh, uh, championed by uh, Chairman Goodlatte? I think that we're not going to get immigration reform on the floor in September. It's just uh, too close to the election. We have too few business days. And so I, I don't think that'll happen. There are those that are trying to get that done. They're trying to count the votes to get that done. Uh, but here's a, here's some of my objections are this, that it's still amnesty. And uh, that bill altogether, the, the Goodlatte bill, they got 192 votes on it, as I recall, um, has got two components of amnesty in it. It more or less grandfathers in the ag workers. 
and it also grants amnesty to dreamers. And once you do that, you've destroyed the rule of law in America, at least with regard to immigration. And once you do that, we start to devolve towards the third world. We've got to have respect for the rule of law. All of my efforts focused on the immigration issue for all of these years have been about restoring the respect for the rule of law. Then, in addition, uh, we have the, the Good Lab Bill, the H2C language, opens up 50,000 slots for food processors. And that means people working in packing plants and packaging asparagus and all of those other things. Well, we ought to be looking to America for this labor. It isn't true that there's work that Americans won't do. We've done every kind of work possible. I looked at the whole population of America and put out a pie chart to let you all know what those folks are all doing. And it works like this. 326 million Americans in this country is the most recent estimate of our federal government. And there are 100 and today about 156 million actually in the workforce. There's not quite 7 million unemployed. 46 million simply not in the workforce. Working age not in the workforce. Another 23 million disabled. And we know they aren't all disabled. And you can go on, but uh, out of those categories from which we could hire some, I added up 107 million Americans. So they may not have the skill sets that we want. They may not live where they need to live to take on these jobs. But they're in this country, and almost all of them are closer to the jobs than the people we're importing from other countries to do them. A smart country would dial welfare down to get these people off the couch in their front lawn and off to work and once they start doing that, they're a, they're a taxpayer, they're a contributor instead of a recipient. You get a twofer for every one. And the tighter this labor supply gets, the more we're going to implement policies that put our own people to work instead of borrowing money from China to pay them not to while we import people from other countries to do the work here. We've had all kinds of pressure, and all the time I've been in Congress, there's two things that push this immigration issue. One is cheap labor, and the other one is, is for political reasons, cheap votes or the census that has the equivalent of votes, whether they vote or not. And both of those reasons are wrong. We need a tighter labor supply so that wages can go up and benefits go up, and low and unskilled people can earn enough money to feed their family. That's the middle class we used to have in this country, but it's been substantially destroyed by the policies and by turning a blind eye to the enforcement of immigration law. So if immigration reform is not considered in September or in this calendar year, when? There's going to be a new Congress seated, of course, in January. To the extent that immigration is an important part of the election, I think we'll see some changes, and I don't know which way it's going to go. Uh, But we have incrementally adjusted to illegal labor in this country, especially in places like California, We didn't have that large an element of it in this country back during, say, Eisenhower's years. So we've incrementally adjusted to it. We can incrementally adjust away from it. But the business model should not be, I'm going to build a big packing plant, and then I'm going to import people from Somalia to do the work that I already know I don't have enough labor supply for. That is an erroneous business plan. But you and I both know that we've seen those plans implemented. There are Americans much closer to the work that we are not even trying to recruit because there's a cheaper labor supply from foreign countries. And that formula doesn't work for the long run. 
it's a failed formula if you extrapolate it out beyond the horizon. And the, but we are better off putting more Americans to work than we are paying them not to work and hiring people from other countries to come in here. And we are subsidizing those families through our tax dollars as well. Let's shift to trade, Congressman. Uh, this Trump administration has had some success with South Korea, some recent success with Mexico, but holding uh, China and holding Canada to a firm line and even threatening additional tariffs on China. Is this the right policy right now? Well, I've said a number of times that I would never have started the renegotiation of NAFTA. I was happy with NAFTA the way it was, and it was good for agriculture, and it was good for our Iowa manufacturing as well. Opening up this issue with China is the theft of their intellectual property. The low number on that is $250 billion a year. The high number is $600 billion a year of our intellectual property pirated every, every year. And that has got to stop. Uh, it's, a, it's a Chinese industry to tap into the creativity of this society, America. And if we can get that resolved, I think we can resolve the balance of the disagreements with China. But it's a precarious place now. But once we started it, if we retreat off of it, we'll, we'll lose in the, in, in the retreat. And so I'm saying, and then the White House has asked me to do this, and that is, I'll say not to do this. They said, please don't do the Chinese work for them. In other words, let the president have as strong a hand as he can have, and then with that strong hand, we're going to get a better deal. So, and I, my answer back was, Yes, but when the beans turn in the fall, which they're doing right now in front of my eyes, uh, that's, it's gonna get, it's gonna get pretty intense out here in the soybean and in the corn belt area. And uh, I'm ready for a resolution of this. The president has turned up the heat. I don't know how far that goes or what those percentages are on that 500 plus billion dollars, uh, worth of Chinese goods that would be subject to a potential tariff. But he's up the ante. So let's see what the Chinese do. And also, I am optimistic that we get an agreement with the Canadians sometime. I actually think we can get this done in September. Uh, and But China is a big, big problem. From agriculture's perspective, certainly a challenge. And some might suggest that the trade assistance package, not enough for all of the industry. If this carries through the winter and into the spring of 2019, it can certainly bring a challenge for a number of farming operations, not only in the 4th District, but across the country. Well, it is for sure. You know, I, I know producers that own a lot of land. It's all paid for. Their bins are full of grain. Their equipment's new and paid for. They've got cash in the bank, and and they're they've already you know they can prepare they can pay their all their inputs for next year uh, without having to go to the bank except to make a withdrawal. Those folks are never going to lose money, but they're in the competition against the young guy or even the young gal. Uh, who has got all rented land and highly leveraged on their equipment and has had to market for cash flow rather than profit. And those folks are in very tough shape. And we're trying to write a policy that addresses the full spectrum from example one to example two. Example one doesn't need any help with all their land and everything paid for. Example, example two is some of them are on the ropes right now. And if things don't change between now and, say, January, we are going to see farm sales that uh, we really regret because they will be the people that, if we can keep them there, and then a generation from now, they're raising the next generation of producers. So it's, it's a very tough call. And, no, I don't think that this 
marketing assistance program and the $12 billion is enough to fill the hole. I question why there's one cent on corn and, you know, $1.65 on beans. I don't know how they're going to distribute it to pork producers. We don't have very many independent operators left anymore. So um, if you pass that out per head, you're going to be subsidizing a Chinese-owned company. Congressman, a very sobering time for the country and certainly for agriculture and a busy time for you. Thank you for taking time while back in the district to visit with us here on Open Mic. Congressman, it is Open Mic, and you have the last word today. Well, I want to put a word of optimism in, and I, and I say this as I look out across a, a corn crop and a soybean crop that, in, at least in, in my area, they'll ask me, have you ever seen a better one? And I say, I maybe have seen it this good. But I'm confident I've never seen it better. We're going to harvest a lot of corn this year and a lot of soybeans in my neighborhood. We have the very best place in the world to live and to raise a family is out here on the family farm. And it's part of our culture. It's part of our life. All new wealth comes out of the land. And it comes out of that rich soil every year. Nobody is better at it than all of you producers out there. So let's hang on to this. It's more than more than this year's crop. And it's more than... It's more than next year's crop, but it is, and it isn't even just a lifestyle, but it is the root and the core of what makes America great. It's precious. And when I look across the countryside, and I, I just just recall that one year I came across, I flew from southern Africa all the way in a window seat, all the way up to, I believe it was Morocco, and turned, and I'd been in Israel shortly before that, and all across the Middle East. And then I, it was it was about the 9th of August when I arrived at Andrews Air Force Base, changed planes and took a ride over and got on a plane at Reagan, and I flew from Washington, D.C. to Omaha. Everything I'd seen until I flew east out of, out of Reagan in Washington, D.C. was sand, dust, or rock, except for an eighth of a mile wide, the River Jordan, that's irrigated. And they fought over that for thousands of years. But... That green that comes out of our soil is wealth. And if the rest of the world knew, could see what we have, horizon to horizon row crop production as far as the eye can see, and it was green all the way from the Atlantic Ocean to Omaha and probably all the way west at that time to the Sand Hills, that tells you what kind of wealth this country has. Let's do our very best not only to take care of it as a source, but let's take care of the people that are out there producing this product out of it every year. Let's take care of their families. We do that, America will be a robust and a prosperous nation as long as we can take care of this land and the people that run it. Our thanks to Iowa 4th District Representative Steve King, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.